How many can relate to this quote here from Eugene Lowry? I feel like 6,000 soldiers inside me. Sometimes they march to the left, sometimes they march to the right, sometimes in all different directions. I'm pulled one way and then another. There's an army inside of me and I think I'm losing the war. Maybe not all, but many of us have felt this way. Could have been years ago or just a week or two or even maybe today. Well, this morning we're going to look at someone also torn, but in a much greater way. This person's deranged, afflicted and tormented, not by one but by a legion within. Yet all this changes when he meets Christ, his compassion and his power. And the good news is we too can also meet the compassion and the power of Christ and become free. So let's come to God's word with a sense of expectation that we will meet Jesus afresh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that your spirit will make Jesus come alive to us as we see him set the demonic free. Have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we work our way through Mark, we come to chapter 5 and the most extensive and well-described exorcism that you'll find in the Bible. We find more detail in this account of Jesus dealing with a demon-possessed man than anywhere else in the Bible. And not only the demon-possessed man, but the exchange with the demons and the onlookers are greater than anywhere else in the Bible. And this is actually a good way to open up the passage this morning. We'll look how Jesus interacts with the possessed man, with the demons, and then the onlookers. And then we'll look at some implications for us. But first, a bit of a catch-up, a bit of a summary of the battle between Jesus and Satan up until now. In Mark chapter 1, after 40 days without food, Jesus not only overcomes Satan's temptations, but he sends him packing. And after calling four fishermen, Jesus then casts out an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, from a church service. Ooh, imagine being in church that morning. That would have been a bit exciting, wouldn't it? What a fuss, a bit of a commotion. You imagine talking about that over a cup of tea for, the, for months, about the time that Jesus came to church. And at the end of the chapter, chapter 1, we see this pattern of Jesus settling into a ministry of teaching, healing, and casting out demons. Now in chapter 2, Satan changes his strategy. Instead of temptations, instead of demonic confrontations, these are clearly ineffective. Instead of these, the devil starts to use the religious leaders to undermine and destroy Jesus' ministry. The frontal, full-on attack's not going to work, so Satan tries the sideways, the subtle attack. And these religious leaders even claim it is by Satan that Jesus casts out demons. And the logic is that Jesus is in league with Satan, and so because Satan is so powerful, Jesus and Satan are casting out the lesser demons. That's the accusation. And of course, Jesus points out the illogic of a civil war between the demons and proclaims that the reason he can cast out demons is because he is the stronger man. He has entered Satan's house, bound him, and is now robbing him blind, plundering his house. This is why Jesus can cast out demons. 
And today we see this battle escalate. And we see the claim that Jesus is the stronger man tested in a most dramatic way. And we pick this up in verse 1 of chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of Gerasene. Now this verse gives us some helpful context. Do we remember what's happened that night? If we go back to the end of chapter 4, we remember that Jesus had calmed the storm. And so the disciples were more afraid in the calm than they were in the fierce waves and the wind. And so we can imagine these disorientated disciples very pleased to set foot on dry land. And here they were in a non-Jewish territory. They were outside Israel. They were in a territory that was not particularly welcoming to Jews. Even as Jesus exits the boat, there's trouble. Verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit or unclean spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now in most biblical accounts of exorcisms, of casting out demons, this is all we get about the afflicted person. You get a sentence. That's about it. But Mark wants us to know much, much more, and it's not pretty. See how he describes the demonic from verse 3. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, In the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Surely this is someone more monster than man. It's a picture of someone frightening, fierce and formidable. Someone not to be messed about. Someone you wouldn't want to meet in the street, let alone in a graveyard or wandering the hills. This was someone to avoid at all costs. But also here it was a man without hope, desperate and to be pitied. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He fell on his knees in front of him. This man knows his desperate need more than we can imagine. And it's much worse than this initial description as he falls at Jesus' feet. And here in the narrative, we must leave the man for a time because the demon takes over. It's time to look at how Jesus deals with the unclean spirit. Verse 7. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you will not torture me. Taking control of the man's voice, the demon shouts and screams and fusses. And though demons can lie, and though we should never trust a demon... There are two things which we can learn from this outburst. First, the demon knows something about Jesus. How does he know? Well, Jesus hasn't been moving around in this territory, but there's some way that this demon knows Jesus' name and his title, and the demon is bold enough to use it. Now, why? Well, it was commonly believed that during exorcism, knowing the name of your opponent gave you an extra edge. So if the demon knows your name, it gives him an edge. If you know his name, it gives you an edge. So the demons try and use this well-worn tactic. 
They call out the person who's trying to cast them out by name and by title. Yet it backfires big time because Jesus is who the demon says he is, the son of the most high God. And so this time this tactic has zero leverage. It does no good whatsoever for the demon. Notice how the demon says, swear to God that you won't torture me. Now what's happening here? Now this is a bit of an aside, but I think it's important just to clear up a common misunderstanding. Now due to the medieval fascination with hell and the likes of Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost, we imagine hell, the lake of fire, as a place where Satan and his demons reign. Well actually that's not what the Bible says. The Bible describes hell as a place of demonic suffering and torture which is a very good reason for us not to want to go there. But it's not a place where Satan reigns and the demons rule. It's a place where they are tortured. And that is why the demon is saying, swear to God that you won't torture me. Don't send me to the lake of fire before my time. So, where did the demon get the idea that this was a possibility? Verse 8. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit, or you unclean spirit. Now again, normally, these words, this one sentence, is enough for Jesus to cast out an evil spirit. But the spirit does not go straight away. That's very unusual, and you won't find that in any other passage in the gospel. So what we hear is we have a resistance for the first time. And so, I mean, we know this story so well, but imagine if you didn't know this story and you're thinking, oh, hello, maybe Jesus has met his match. Maybe Jesus is not the stronger man who can plunder. Maybe this demon is stronger than the rest. What's happening here? And we find out why there is resistance in verse 9. Then Jesus said to him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And the penny drops. For a full-strength legion in the Roman army was 6,000 highly trained military men. So this man, we're talking seriously possessed. It's not just one demon, 6,000 of Satan's most terrifying horde. And yet they're rattled. They're rattled by Jesus. Remember Mark's earlier description of the man's condition? He was unstoppable, even iron chains he could snap. Mark spends the time describing this to us so that we can understand what those 6,000 were doing to the man and what Jesus is up against. Yet, at the odds of 1 to 6,000, the demons are reduced to begging. Don't send us to the lake of fire. Verse 10, we see twice that they are begging not to be sent to torture. And in verse 12, they even beg to be sent into a herd of pigs that happen to be grazing nearby. 6,000 to 1, the odds are still in Jesus' favour. And so Jesus surprisingly grants them permission. And in a major twist, the pigs are driven insane and hurl themselves off the cliff to their destruction. And instantly, everything changes. The shouting stops, the begging, and the man, now sane, in his right mind, sits quietly before Jesus. 
And Jesus has faced his biggest challenge to date and is comprehensively victorious. Surely no one could argue that Jesus is not the stronger man who has bound Satan and plunders his house. But the drama does not stop here, for it's time to consider the onlookers. We've seen the man now free and the demons now defeated, but what about the onlookers? And we pick that up in verse 15. Now those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Again, normally in other gospel accounts, we would just be told a one-liner about the onlookers. Either they were amazed or if they were religious leaders, they would be grumpy. But here, we're told much more detail about the reaction of the onlookers. Those who were terrorised by this tomb dweller, who had seen the self-harm and had seen the rags and the nakedness, who were scared witless, now see this self-same man sitting in his right mind, fully dressed, and they were scared. They were afraid. Not only this, verse 16 Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. Now consider the pigs. Jewish folk would have seen the righteousness of this whole episode. Remember, pigs were and still are unclean to Jewish folk in a major way. Now, it was known to Jesus, in fact, all the Jewish folk in recent history about the Maccabean martyrs. In between the Old and the New Testament, the Greek Empire controlled Israel, and they had one particularly nasty Greek ruler who basically got a family, some brothers, and said, you're either going to be tortured or you eat pork. And one by one, the brothers refused in front of their mother, and they were each individually tortured, and that was a benchmark for the Jewish faith, and they all knew about it. And it was one of those stories that you just passed around the family. And so in their mind, the Maccabean martyrs eat pork or die uh, and be tortured, and they chose not to eat pork. So there's a sense of rightness with this story for a Jewish person. Unclean spirits have been cast into unclean pigs who have then been destroyed by running off a cliff. There would be a strong, ah, this is just good and right. This is what we expect a Messiah to do. Now, that's amongst the Jewish folk. But, of course, they were in Gentile territory. And so this exorcism was a financial catastrophe. I mean, do the maths. In modern terms, how much does an adult pig cost? Does anyone know? I googled it. It's a bit hard to find that in New Zealand. So... Very cheap pig will cost you a couple of hundred dollars. They're more, I'm sure they're more than that. But let's do the math. Keep it simple. $200 per pig, 2000 is $400,000. Okay, some of you are ex-farmers. You, what would it be like if you had $400,000 worth of stock killed, gone in an instant, in the days before insurance? How's that going to hit your farm? You're going to have to lay off some staff? How's that going to affect the local economy? And this is a financial disaster for the locals. 
$400,000 conservative in, in modern terms. No wonder they wanted Jesus gone. What if he stayed? What else trouble is he going to cause? And on top of that, here is this man that had terrorised them perfectly sane. And they were scared of the power of God. And they wanted Jesus gone, so they begged him to leave. And Jesus does. Jesus turns to get back in the boat, much to the relief of the locals. But what about the man? What about the man who's now set free? What's become of him? Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. There's a lot of begging in this story, isn't it? I mean, the demons begged to go into the pigs. The onlookers, the locals, have just begged Jesus to go. And now the man begs to be with Jesus. Now, when I was reading this, you think, well, Jesus, why are you listening to what the demons are saying? But he did. Why are you listening to what the onlookers are saying? Oh, but he did. But here is a good request. Surely Jesus is going to allow this person to follow him. It's what he wants, isn't it? People to follow him. So, verse 19. Jesus did not let him. Well, that's a bit of a surprise. Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, no. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. Wow. Is Jesus as hard as he appears to be? Well, of course not. Two things here that are unnoticed. First of all, go home to your family. Think about it. When was the last time that this man was free to go home to his family? Can you imagine it? Imagine his parents and and the locals saying, is that your son terrorising people at the tombs? Not our son. We disowned him years ago. What about his brothers and sisters? Is that your brother out there causing all the mischief? Go and sort him out. He's not our brother. We haven't talked to him for years. We don't want anything to do with him. What if he had a wife and children before he became tormented? So do you see the gift of compassion that Jesus is giving this man? First of all, this man, because of Jesus, has his sanity back, but he also has his family back. Ah, the mercy and the wisdom and the grace of the Jesus that we follow. Secondly, what we have here is the first evangelist in Mark. Jesus has told this man to go and tell the people, his family, about him. Now later on, in another few chapters, uh, Jesus will commission the disciples to go out in pairs and to tell them about Jesus amongst the Jewish folk. But here, early on, a Gentile is told to tell people about Jesus to other Gentiles. And the message, what's the message? Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And here we have the core of the gospel. We overcomplicate evangelism. What is evangelism? Well, you have it right here. You say, this is how I met Jesus. And you tell them. And then you say, this is the difference he's made in my life. That's what the man was going to do. He was going to go home to his parents and say, this is how I met Jesus. And this is the difference he's made in my life. And then he's going to go to probably each of his brothers and sisters. And if he's got a wife and children, imagine that. This is what Jesus did for me. And this is how he's made a difference. 
Now, this is what evangelism is. We overcomplicate things, but at its core, it's this is how I met Jesus, and this is how he's making a difference in my life. Now, there's a lot of people here who have met Jesus in different ways, and your story is unique and it's special. It may be dramatic. There might be this huge change between the rat bag life that you used to live, you met Jesus, and everything's changed. We love to hear those stories, and you need to be sharing it. Others of us have grown up in the church, and our coming to Jesus has been a lot more slow and gradual. For some folk, they kind of look back you know, and think, actually, I'm not quite sure on the day that I became a Christian, but, but by golly, I'm keen to follow Jesus. But we need to hear that story as well and the difference Jesus has made in your life. And so did the man obey? Did he do it? Did he go and tell his family and friends? Well, let's look at the last verse in this section. Verse 20. So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And the people were amazed. They were afraid, but they'd heard this man tell them about Jesus. They'd seen the change in their life, and they moved from fear to amazement. And this is the encouragement for us today. What's our take home? What's our application? Well, our first one is an encouragement to evangelize in the same way that this man did. To be always ready to give our testimony. And I encourage folk in different sort of situations to spend some time and write their testimony in three minutes. That's 300 words. And the idea is you say, how I met Jesus and a difference he's made in my life. Now, some of us, we need 3,000 words, 30,000 words to say that. So it's a real discipline to keep it nice and simple. And God's done so many things in your life, you might just want to pick on one or two. You know, it might be um, something like mental health, or it might be your marriage or relationships or work, but something where God's really made a difference. And that's what this passage is encouraging us to do. So that's the first take home. Don't make evangelism complicated. How I met Jesus how he's making a difference in my life. Second of all, notice what desperation does. Now, if we step back a bit, now, when I preached on the the calming of the storm, I said that there were three miracles and then the rejection of Jesus in his hometown, and they're a bit of a unit. Now, one of the themes that goes through these three stories is desperation. The disciples desperately woke Jesus up in the boat and said, save us. The man desperately falls at Jesus' feet. And next week, when we look at Jairus, the synagogue ruler, he desperately begs Jesus to heal his daughter. And this theme goes through these three major miracles. And it tells us a very important thing. The Bible really is underlining that desperate people are open to God. Desperate people are open to God. Now, one of the frustrating things, and I'm sure you've all come across this, is people in Cromwell that we know that are lovely and they're comfortable. They have a good job or a comfortable retirement. We know them um, because they're our neighbours or because they're in the bowling club with us or because our kids at school, you know, they play together and they're comfortable and they've got good jobs, good health, good families, and it is so hard to tell them about Jesus because they're not desperate. And they're hard. We still witness to them, but it can be hard. You get someone, though, whose finances are a mess, whose family is just full of tensions, 
whose health, you know, chronic illness of them or of loved one, and they're desperate, and you don't have to tell them, and they are that close to the kingdom of God. Because this passage and the Bible keeps telling us those people who are desperate are open to the work of God. If I was a good minister, I would be praying desperate things into your life and calamity and trouble. <laughs> but, I, but I know you'd be praying it back to me because <laughs> you're a good congregation. <laughs> Joking aside though, God allows difficult things into our lives so that we will fall at the feet of Jesus and see how lovely he is. Now, my reaction, my default reaction, is as trouble comes into my life, and I might quietly shake my fist at God and say, why? And then I use my own resources to try and sort it. And I waste that opportunity. (laughs) Desperate people are open to God and gladly fall on their knees before Jesus and say, help me. And that's when you see the loveliness of Christ. And that's what the story is telling us about, and the three miracles put together. And finally, what does the story tell us about Christ? Well, we see Satan launch his most ferocious, full-on attack at Jesus and fail miserably. A horde of 6,000 of Satan's finest demons are beaten to a pulp and Jesus doesn't even break a sweat. You know, I think if Satan thought that if he increased that to 6,000 to 60,000 or 600,000, I think if he thought that would work, he would do it. But I think after this, he knew he would be humiliated. I mean, he's already humiliated with this, and we're laughing at his expense. Imagine if he threw 600,000 demons at Jesus and he didn't break a sweat and cast them into the lake of fire. This is an important defeat for Satan here. He stops his full-on attacks and continues to undermine with the religious leaders, undermine, undermine, undermine all the way to the cross. Don't we worship an amazing, victorious Jesus? It's the same today. Whenever a broken and a humble soul comes and falls at the feet of Jesus saying, Lord, have your way with me, another possession of Satan is stolen from his house. His mansion is being plundered every time a humble soul comes into the kingdom of God. And the joy and the excitement is we can be part of that. As we share Jesus, what he's done to us and what he means to us, Jesus is going to rip that person away from the dominion of darkness and set him free because Satan is bound. Plundering hell to populate heaven. Yeah, David mentioned that before. Very appropriate, isn't it? Isn't it great? Don't we worship a Christ who is worthy of honour? The Messiah, the anointed one, the one that we serve. No wonder our hearts fill with praise. No wonder our hearts want to adore and worship the living Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.